If you're enjoying the show, make sure you visit the Willow Wings Witch Shop. You can pick up copies of all my published works, plus homemade magical powders, spell kits, and charms for all occasions. Use code HEXPOSITIVE to get 10% off your order. While you're there, make sure you sign up for the email list to receive monthly newsletters with announcements, featured items, merch drops, and special discount codes. Visit the shop at hexpositive.myshopify.com today, and happy witching! I'm Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Witches, this is episode 43 of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Brie Nagarin, and today's episode is one for the animal lovers among us. Now, we're all more or less aware of the stereotypical image of the witch with a companion animal, whether it be a cat, a dog, a bird, a goat, a rodent, a toad, or what have you. A good many witches you find online will regularly post cat pictures alongside photos of their magical workings, myself included. And if this sounds at all familiar to you, then you're already ahead of me and probably expected that terrible pun. Yep, today we're tackling the topic of house pets and familiars, and no, the jokes aren't going to get any better. I'm going to be mentioning cats a lot, since a lot of witches have them and thus they show up often in witchy social media. It's just a thing. And because that's where most of my own experience lies. Anyone who's uh, followed this show or my socials for any length of time know that I am a diehard cat person. I've had cats all my life, and I adore them. They are my favorite domestic animal. And, of course, you know my own darling kitties, creative director Havoc and producer Penny. So, yeah, that's what we're covering today. Uh, Please do know that the subject matter in this episode can also extend to whatever kind of pet you happen to have. Familiars are not limited to cats. It's just statistically more prevalent. That's all. But first, a few quick announcements. First and foremost, the new location for the Willow Wings Witch Shop is open It's got a brand new home at hexpositive.myshopify.com with an easy-to-navigate layout that's accessible on desktop and mobile devices and a working cart instead of an old-fashioned order form. (gasps) What a concept! Really moving into the 21st century here. Mm. There's lots of new merch available as well. There are new variations of those cute little mini bottle charms like strength and confidence, things we can always use. New powders like inspiration salt and new home powder. That last one you won't actually find in pestle work. I'm working on creating some new recipes just for the shop. And those adorable moon spell jars that I've been promising are now available in six different varieties. They are so pretty. They're filled with dried plants and crystal chips, and they have beautiful sealing wax 
tops with a little silver full moon stamp. I'm obsessed. I love them. I'm also debuting some spell kits based on entries from the Sisters Grimoire, which will feature most of the specialty or hard-to-find components needed for the spell, as well as full instructions. This is based on some feedback I've gotten from all of you lovely listeners and the people who visit my shop and my table at live market events, and I'm hoping to put together some additional purpose-driven spell kits in the future. The Witch Web Kits are back in stock as well with new colors, including metallic silver and glow-in-the-dark floss. I'm not even kidding about that last one. I have tested the floss. It looks amazing, and it actually does glow in the dark. I have one on my wall in my workspace, and I absolutely love it. And of course, the stickers and buttons we all know and love are back in stock as well. There's slightly fewer designs than you might expect just at the moment because a few of them are on back order. However, those will be back very, very soon along with some new designs. And I'm hoping to branch out into full-size bumper stickers a little bit later this year. I'm still figuring out things as far as customs and international shipping goes. For So for the time being, books are the only thing that's available to ship worldwide, but the rest of the inventory I can only ship domestically. Many apologies to my non-US customers. I love you all and I'm working on it, I promise. Shopify has a lot of uh, really good international shipping options and I'm just sort of exploring how to make things easier as far as US customs go because they are real sticklers when you're shipping things like glass. I'm hoping to debut new items periodically if things go well, so make sure you sign up for the email list to be notified of special announcements, discount codes, new item drops, seasonal offerings, and upcoming events. Your information will not be passed along to any third parties, and the emails will probably come once or twice a month at most, so you're not going to be inundated with junk mail every other day. You can go to hexpositive.myshopify.com to check out the new site, sign up for the email list, and order whatever happens to catch your fancy. Make sure you update your bookmarks and watch your email and my social media on Tumblr, Instagram, and WordPress for forthcoming announcements. You may have noticed that there was a surprise episode of Witch Ways earlier this month, which we haven't seen in quite a while. My apologies for the extreme lateness of this episode. February is traditionally not a great month in my household, and it's really been a wild one this year. Uh, there was a delay in late January when I had to fix a broken computer. And then, of course, there was the shop opening to see to. And then, as some of you may have heard, producer Penny got very, very sick. She has this chronic respiratory issue that flares up from time to time, and this month it got really bad. That was a very rough week. Way too many vet visits for my liking, but fret not, there is a happy ending. We finally got her to the local pet hospital. Wonderful, wonderful people. They were able to see her on a same-day emergency visit, 
They sedated her for a quick full body exam and they found and thankfully removed a rather large mass from behind her soft palate. Uh, some kind of overgrown nasal polyp, they said, and it's probably been there for most of her life, causing all those problems with drinking and swallowing. So, thankfully, it's gone now. There were no complications, no additional surgery required. Penny is feeling so much better. The vet says she's going to make a full recovery. So, shout out to the wonderful people of Noah's Ark for uh, taking care of our little girl. And uh, she should be back to normal in no time flat. So... All that's out of the way. <laughs> and I'm finally back on track. Feels kind of like coming out the other side of something, not gonna lie. And if there are any problems in the future, hopefully not, knock on wood, I have a little stockpile of Which Ways episodes to get us through any potential delays. And maybe they'll turn up as Patreon extras in the meantime. Who knows? Yet another reason to sign up. Uh, speaking of Patreon, and this is a great time to sign up at breenicarin.patreon.com to help support the show. Uh, because not only will you get early access to new episodes, updates on my project and the shop, and sneak peeks of upcoming merch drops, but Patreon supporters will also receive a special discount code to use in the store. How awesome! You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, and believe me, every single one of them is deeply appreciated. It was actually thanks to uh, Patreon contributions this month that we were able to pay some of Penny's vet bills. So thank you guys. You are the best. That about does it for this month's announcements. Finally, eight and a half minutes later. <laughs> so uh, now that that's out of the way, let's get into it. To begin with, let's take a quick look at the concept of familiars. In a historical sense, a familiar is a spirit or a creature which is created, summoned, sent, or gifted to a witch to assist them with their magical workings. And I must state for clarity that there is a pretty universally negative slant on this concept when familiars are mentioned in European folklore and trial records. The idea of a magical practitioner having a servant creature, whether it takes the form of an unseen spirit or an actual living animal or creature, is something that appears in many cultures and folkloric traditions. But there's a special focus on, or dare I say, a preoccupation with, the idea of the witch's familiar within the folklore of the British Isles and England specifically. I mentioned all the way back in episode 20, that big, big, long ramble about witchcraft and the law, that when it came to the heyday of the witch trials, most Western European countries had some sort of trademark characteristic or behavior that definitively identified a witch. You had your standards like attending those secret devil orgies in the woods, uh, cursing your neighbors, conjuring spirits, causing crop failures, interfering with livestock or food production, messing with the weather, and so forth. And then you had particular things that were focused in different regions, like a smoking gun that could quote-unquote, prove someone was a witch. 
In France, for example, it was demonic possession or setting evil spirits on people. In Germany, it was all about the witch's mark and getting all sweaty and debauched with demons. In Scandinavia, most trials make some mention of stealing or bewitching children, as well as an imaginary magical island to which those children were taken. And in England, it was all about familiars. Whether it's some unseen servitor, or an unnatural-looking creature sighted in the area, or just a random, mundane animal seen in the company or home of the accused— Famous examples from trial records include the toad-turned-cat named Satan that supposedly belonged to Agnes Waterhouse, the many imps allegedly witnessed at an Essex witches' meeting by that asshole Matthew Hopkins. These were the ones with the fantastic names like Piewacket and Grezel Greedygut, and the various poor dogs and cats who were killed during the Salem witch trials as suspected familiars. Not something that gets mentioned in a lot of the uh, media associated with Salem, but it was definitely something that happened. Speaking of Salem, that's actually a good example of the preoccupation with the concept of the witch's familiar being reflected in law, or at least what passed for law at the time, considering the colony of Massachusetts didn't actually have a charter when the trials happened, which was part of the problem, but that's a story for another time. The charter that did exist previously states that there are two crimes for which a person can face capital punishment, and they're not the ones that you would regularly think. You'd think it would be something like, oh, I don't know, murder or something equally heinous, but nope, these were the Puritans. So those two crimes were idolatry, meaning the worship of idols, which in the terms of the day basically meant being not a Christian, and witchcraft. If any man or woman be a witch, that is, has or consults with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death, reads an excerpt from the law. And that's literally the definition of witchcraft according to the terms of that charter. Uh, of course, superstition of the day also dealt with the standards I mentioned before, as well as uh, quite a lot of emphasis on the witch's mark. And of course, we all know about how spectral evidence became a whole thing during those trials, though it was something that was neither popular nor believed in elsewhere at the time. Salem was a bit of a last gasp and an overzealous outlier in the history of witch trials. But again, Another topic for another day. Going back a bit further, both King James's demonology and the Malleus Maleficarum make mention of the familiar as one of the telling signs that a person is a witch. And when you look a bit closer at the reasons given for this, the idea seems to stem from a fear of the unaltered natural world and a witch's supposed connection to it. Now, this isn't going into the idea of, you know, some secret, magical, natural world pagan cult. It has to do with the mentality of European civilization at the time these books were written. At the time, the idea that existed in the quote-unquote civilized 
imagination uh, was that nature is only acceptable when tamed for human use, that animals are only good when they're useful to humans as livestock or food. And for a good long while, for centuries in fact, this was something that was born out of necessity. Wild areas were dangerous, wild animals were dangerous, and if you weren't very, very careful, if you didn't stick to established roots, if you didn't defend yourself, if you didn't uh, account for the weather or rough terrain, you could wind up dead, or dinner, or sometimes one, and then the other. Additionally, there's a number of pre-Christian religions or practices that were seen as very closely tied to nature all over the continent before the church took over. You had the Basques, the Balkans, the Hellenists, the Sami up in Scandinavia, Slavic, Baltic, and Uralic peoples in the East, and of course the various flavors of Celtic and Germanic just all over the place. All cultures and traditions with very strong ties to animals and animal spirits as symbols, sometimes as deities, and all of them had their own associated magic and power. And these are just general regional terms that only cover the European continent. The magical connection that folklore has with animals is something that exists everywhere in the world that we have folkloric traditions. So you have this mentality of wanting to conquer or master the natural world because nature in its unaltered state was not safe and because it was seen as a relic, as it were, of this pagan past that the status quo were actively trying to move away from as a Christianized world, so to speak. This was a time when the vast majority of people living in the countryside were extremely vulnerable. Death by disease, starvation, injury, natural disaster, uh, childbirth, human cruelty, or just plain bad luck was around the corner pretty much all the time. Anything out of the ordinary, anything unnatural, anything strange could be a sign of a threat or some kind of impending disaster. So it's easy to see how someone who is seen as having too close a connection to the wild, to that scary, untamed part of the natural world, could be seen as a threat. And also how that could be connected with devils or demons, as we see in trial records later. We all know how creepy it is when an animal stares at us just a little too long or acts in an odd way. Now imagine you're a farmer with this ingrained superstition that witches can turn into animals or send animal servants to do their bidding, and you've just seen a crow land on your fence and croak at you. Suddenly it's a whole new spectrum of yikes. Was that a witch? Or familiar? Has my land just been cursed? Is my livestock going to sicken? Will my crops fail? Are my children going to die? And all of these were very real possibilities, whether witchcraft was involved or not. And of course, any occurrence of the sort that happened after the sighting could very realistically be attributed to Maleficium, to some baneful magical working. You see a black bird in your neighbor's yard and the finger pointing starts. 
And you have to remember that in the minds of most people at this time, nothing just happened. There was no coincidence. Everything was either the will of God or the interference of the devil, and there was a firm belief that there were people actively advancing both causes at every possible opportunity. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode is brought to you in part by Creations by Chaos Fae. If you're looking to give your witchcraft space a cozy cottage core feel, check out Creations by Chaos Fae for fine handmade quilted textiles and decorations. Right now, you can commission a custom piece through their shop, from altar cloths to tarot mats and lots more. Check out past projects and current creations at Creations by Chaos Fae on Tumblr, or visit their coffee shop to request a one-of-a-kind item you'll treasure for years to come. Commissions are only open through June 1st, so make sure you don't delay. If you feel daring and want to lean into the chaos, you can use code GOHOGWILD for 15% off your order. Some restrictions apply. See post linked in the show notes for details. Support small business and cozy up your craft with Creations by Chaos Fae. This episode is brought to you in part by Portland Buttonworks. Do you like buttons? Of course you do. Have you ever had a great idea for one but just been like, darn it, if only I had the resources and equipment? Well, fret no more. Portland Buttonworks is just what you need. Portland Buttonworks creates custom pinback buttons in four different sizes, plus magnets, hand mirrors, and bottle openers. Download their templates and create your own designs, or use their new Design-O-Matic for quick formatting. You can order just a few custom items, or order in bulk for merchandise or big events. I've been getting buttons from Portland Buttonworks for years, and their quality is always top of the line. Ever wonder where the Hex Positive buttons came from? Well, now you know. And once you're done making your buttons, make sure you visit the newly rebranded Spiral House Shop thoughtfully curated catalog of pre-made buttons, zines, books, comics, tarot cards, and other curiosities, Spiral House focuses on intersectionality, the personal as political, witchcraft, magic, and occult topics. There's a good chance that they have exactly what you're looking for. Visit the main Buttonworks at portlandbuttonworks.com and check out the Spiral House shop at spiralhouseshop.com. Help support small business and get your buttons from Portland Buttonworks. Fighting fascism one button at a time since 2012. And now, back to the show. When we look back at the historical use of the word familiar, we see a trend in the way these creatures were used. They delivered messages, they performed tasks, they assisted in the carrying out of all kinds of spells. Some of them wound up being components in the spell. A great many familiars are noted to have taken on one animal form or the other, like the famous Vinegar Tom, who allegedly appeared as a greyhound with the head of an ox, or, of course, the more modern example of Sabrina Spellman's little black cat Salem, who we all know and love. It's important to note that a number of influential texts on witchcraft belief, including the Malleus and Daemonology and others, the terms familiar and familiar spirit are used 
somewhat interchangeably. This is because while familiars in the European tradition were generally accepted as being able to take on a physical form, they were essentially beings of spirit, hence their ability to go forth and do a witch's bidding at any time, and often over great distances without being seen or interfered with. Some of them were even thought to be able to turn invisible. So now not only do you have a witch's servant that can move through the air, through walls, at breakneck speed over great distances, you might not even see it coming. Yikes. All this being said, the concept of familiars and of having a familiar has also changed with the advent of the modern witchcraft movement. Spiritual servitors are still a thing in some circles, whether in the form of a created entity like an egregore or a spirit with which a practitioner has a working relationship or what have you. And there are also plenty of witches who have animal familiars or call their pets their familiars. There's lots of iterations. Now, it's important to remember that most of what we know or think we know about familiars specifically as it applies to witches in Western European folklore, comes directly from these treatises written about what various scholars and religious officials assumed witches were getting up to in their secret evil doings, or from actual written records of witch trials. At best, this is information from hostile sources. Most of it either pulled from contemporary superstitions or just made up out of whole cloth. And that became sort of accepted lore about witches after it was published by Margaret Murray in her writings on that thrice-bedamned witch cult hypothesis. And many of those ideas subsequently made their way into the roots of the modern witchcraft movement. And I'll remind everybody, just for good measure, that the trials these records refer to involved no actual witches, as we define the term today, and that the witch cult hypothesis is complete bunk. The short, short version of the hypothesis is, what if everything the trial records said about witches was actually true, and was evidence of the surviving pre-Christian pagan cult? Sure, Jan, and what if the world was made of pudding? We actually get a lot of suppositions about ye olde witchy goings-on from Murray's writings, in no small part because her definition of witchcraft was in the Encyclopedia Britannica for literal decades. I would encourage listeners to check out episode 36 of the show, Margaret Effing Murray, for more information on that. Or if you just like hearing me and Senpai Trey Dorn of BS Free Witchcraft rant about things that get our collective goat. In all fairness, the modern pagan and witchcraft movements have adopted or reclaimed a lot of language and symbolism associated with witches and witchcraft that was previously seen as negative or evil by default, including the very words pagan and witch. The concept of familiars could certainly be seen as part of this. But with that, and with the influence of certain witchcraft-themed media on the public consciousness, I feel like the idea has been 
dumbed down from this powerful shape-shifting spirit which exists as a witch's servant and messenger to basically a pet that exists in a house where a witch lives. This, this is where I feel like my personal opinion might be a slightly unpopular one. Because I think, just me, that nine times out of ten, your pet is not your familiar. Even taking into account how words and concepts ha have shifted over time and can take on new meaning or be reclaimed by a community, I still feel like we're starting with a very flawed premise when it comes to the idea of modern witches saying, oh, this is my pet who is also a familiar. A familiar isn't just an animal who happens to live with or belong to a witch, or even a pet who takes an interest in your materials or your spell work. A familiar is a servant. A familiar is a creature that actively and deliberately engages with your magic as your assistant, your messenger, your partner, who takes orders from you. And even though it's really, really cute when your fur baby goes nosing around in your box of herbs or takes a nap on your altar, mine have both done it, it's adorable, but that doesn't make them a familiar. How can I put it? It's, um, it's like the difference between a Bichon and a Border Collie. Yes, they are both dogs. Yes, they can be pets and companions. But a Bichon is bred to be a companion animal and a lap dog, while a Border Collie is a dog with a job to do. It's literally built to herd sheep. And even if it's also a family pet, that dog is there to work. Whether it has the opportunity to do so depends on the environment, of course, but anybody who's ever had a Border Collie will tell you that you have to give it something to do or expect a lot of chewed up furniture. And it's much the same with pets versus familiars. A pet is a companion, a buddy, a member of the family. A familiar is there to do a job. And while it's possible that there's maybe some crossover, a familiar may also be a pet or companion, and a pet or companion may also be a familiar, a familiar's primary purpose in being there in the first place is to work. I don't want to knock witches who do have their pets perform the duties of a familiar or who call their pets familiar simply because it's an animal who belongs to a witch but performs no actual duties with regard to their craft. But it, it is something that sticks in my craw just a tiny little bit. A familiar isn't just a companion. Or, like I said, your cat deciding that your altar is a comfy place to nap. A familiar has a job, and that job is to be the servant and messenger of a witch. And I, I just don't think that pets ought to be servants and messengers. Or that simply existing in the same house as a practicing witch makes an animal a familiar. All this being said, I obviously can't stop anyone from calling their kitty a familiar. This is all just my personal take on the subject. But if you're going to call your pet a familiar, it really kind of does behoove you to understand what that means in an overall context. That it can mean 
a witch's animal companion. But it's not just that. The word has a history, and it has an established meaning, and even though that meaning has changed over time, it's important to, you know, keep those origins in mind when you're talking about familiars. And yes, I say this in the full knowledge that I have two cats who might very easily be mistaken for familiars. You all know my hardworking production team, creative director Havoc and producer Penny. They're always up in my business, whether it's sitting in on a ritual or inspecting new merchandise or doing quality control on the latest plant harvest or walking in between my face and the laptop screen while I'm trying to record which is how I spent a good 10 minutes before the start of this episode. Like I said, Havoc and Penny could very easily be mistaken for my familiars. They take a pretty active interest in whatever I'm doing. They both tend to follow me around, and when I speak to them, they meow right back. In 1692, that would probably be enough to get me arrested, which means I must be living right. And I do call them my witch cats. They are my cats. They belong to a witch. And sometimes they participate in magical workings. But they're not my familiars. They aren't my servants. They don't carry spells or messages. And they really only do my nefarious bidding when it involves getting a treat. I will say, though, my old cat, Sebastian, God's rest him, wasn't my familiar. But back when I was first starting to build my own practice, he was doing his damnedest to win the part. Sebastian was my pop-up's cat, and he came to live with us after pop-up passed away. He was the quintessential witch's cat. Big, floofy, black beast with big yellow eyes and a resounding yowl. That was a cat who could hold a conversation. He, he sounded like the ghost kid from The Grudge. It was eerie and terrifying. Gave me a heart attack more than once by meowing in the stairwell in the middle of the night. Mm. He was grumpy and opinionated, and for some reason he decided that we were going to be best friends. That might have had something to do with my box of herbs and my propensity for feeding him tidbits of cheeseburgers. I had the worst time trying to keep him out of that herb box, though. Every time I popped the lid, he'd come running. Not even getting things out of the box, just and there he was. He'd mill around on the bed and in my room and yell at me until I gave him a pinch of catnip to roll on. It was either that or he would wholesale climb into the box to find it. Nothing was safe from this cat. Sebastian also came to sit by the altar while I conducted some of my very first rituals, so his involvement was, uh, I guess, a little more direct. He actually used to bless <laughs> some of my charms that I made by head-bonking them or just touching them with his paw. Very gentlemanly. He was a very proper cat. And Sebastian lived to a ripe old age, and he passed away a couple of years after I moved to Virginia. I still have pictures of him with some of my various witchy tools and accoutrements from, uh, from back in the day. Um, he was my first real witch cat, and that's a role that's since been passed on to Havoc and Penny, who also 
have the behaviors of sitting with me for rituals and spells, uh, getting into my supplies, and giving little blessings to some of the stuff I make. Now, I do involve my cats in my craft some of the time. And when I do, I make sure to observe some important safety parameters. And that's what I want to talk about real quick before we wrap up this episode. When practicing witchcraft around animals, you really want to take the same precautions you'd take around children. Put anything sharp or spillable well out of reach. Prevent them from climbing or jumping onto surfaces that are unstable or which contain breakables. Don't put your altar or ritual items or supplies on something that can be easily knocked over or pulled down. Don't let them eat anything from your witchcraft supplies. If they like catnip or silver vine, have a little stash for them that you keep separate. Don't let them stick their noses or paws or tails into incense dishes or wax warmers, and for heaven's sake, keep them away from the candles. Fire safety always. If you're burning anything on that topic, uh, be it incense or candles or the contents of a cauldron, make sure you ventilate the room properly and turn on exhaust fans or open the windows to get rid of the smoke after you're finished. Give your pet a quick sniff and if they smell like smoke or whatever scent was in your burnables, give them a quick wipe down with a wet paper towel. They might not be terribly happy with you, but it's so much better to inconvenience them for a minute than to have them potentially get sick from ingesting that residue when they clean themselves. And by the same token, you definitely want to ventilate the smoke, like I said, so that they don't have to breathe it. Just because it doesn't bother you doesn't mean that it's not harmful to them. Their nasal passages and their lungs are a lot smaller than ours, so any damage that they take is going to be much more serious. Never feed your pet anything they shouldn't be eating as part of a spell. If you want to put a helpful spell on their food dish or their favorite treat, and then feed it to them, that's fine, as long as it doesn't involve sprinkling powders or potions or what have you on the food. And on that note, never, ever, ever give your pets essential oils. Don't get it anywhere near them. That shit can be lethal, and you do not want to lose your fur baby because some well-meant intention was carried out with toxic components. Essential oils are for aromatherapy for humans, and that's it. Don't go diffusing or spraying or dripping them around your home if you have animals. And for crying out loud, don't use them on your pets in place of proper medical care. If you want to make stupid decisions for your own health, it's whatever. But do not, do not make that decision for an animal. If you can't be arsed to give your pet actual vet-prescribed medicine and care when they need it, you should not have pets. Full stop. On a final note, getting back to the magical side of things and away from my ranting, if you're going to be working a spell where you're worried about 
some kind of fallout or backlash or, or possible repercussions, because as we know, all actions have consequences and everything has a price, do not involve your pets. It's one thing to risk your own well-being on the consequences of spell work, but it's another thing entirely to make that choice for your pet or any other occupant of your home. When we work magic, for good or for ill, we accept whatever consequences come with that decision. But we can't make that decision for other people, and we shouldn't be making it for our pets either. And if you're giving your pet the label of familiar and just arbitrarily involving them with everything you do as a witch, there is the potential that the consequences of your actions might be visited upon the animal as well. I realize that's a bit of a reach, but speaking as someone who engages in her share of less-than-friendly magic, that's not a risk that I'm personally willing to take, hence why my kitties are gently shooed out of the room when I'm bringing down the magical hammer. If there are consequences for my actions, they're going to fall on my head, not their sweet little fuzzy noggins. And I would encourage any witch who has animals or who has an animal familiar to take the same precautions just in case. Plus, that kind of spell work, at least for me, takes a lot of concentration and a pretty good amount of anger to pull off, and it's so hard to maintain that headspace when there's a little fluffernutter of a cat laying next to you and purring and giving you the big eyes. <laughs> so that's that on familiars. There's a lot more information out there on animals playing a role uh, in magic as helpers or messengers or what have you. And I definitely encourage looking into that further if it's something that interests you. I'll put some recommendations for reading materials and other podcasts in the show notes uh, for your perusal with regard to uh, familiars in folklore and in the history of witches and witch trials. And if you want lots of adorable pictures of Havoc and Penny to squeal over, and I know you do, you can follow me at Brie on Instagram. So... That about wraps it up for this month. Thank you so much for bearing with me as things have been topsy-turvy. And we will be back on schedule for March. So you're getting a, a bit of a bonus. And speaking of March and familiars and witch trials, I have a very special treat for all of you. On March 1st, I will be airing an interview that I did with Annika Hilmo, one of the producers of a forthcoming documentary entitled The Last Witch. Some of you may have seen their posts floating around on social media or seen the trailer online. The film tells the story of an eighth grade civics class in Massachusetts that began a project to better their community and ended up on a crusade to secure a state pardon for the last victim of the Salem witch trials, Elizabeth Johnson Jr. She was the only one of the accused witches who had yet to receive an official pardon. It's a pretty wild journey, and a very touching story that I think will resonate with a lot of us, both from a historical perspective and by addressing the issues of bullying and rumor-mongering that continue to exist to this day. I am so pleased to be helping to bring more visibility to this project. It's really going to be something special. 
So make sure you don't miss the episode and check out thelastwitchfilm.com for more information ahead of the air date. And for now, as always, Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network, where you can find shows ranging from tabletop RPG to true crime to witchcraft, including our fabulous sibling show, BS Free Witchcraft, hosted by the wonderful Trey Dorn. Make sure you check out the new forums and join us on Discord to chat with show creators and fellow listeners. Please remember to rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. Support the show by joining my Patreon for as little as a dollar a month for early access to new episodes and bonus content. And of course, come and visit the Willow Wings Witch Shop in its new home on Shopify. Check out the Hex Positive Redbubble Shop for lots of additional show merch. And watch my socials for forthcoming announcements about live events and shop updates. Until next time, I'm Brina Garen reminding you to stay safe, Wash your hands and give your pets an extra hug. And snackies. They probably want snackies. Where's my kitties? Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. Visit brainagarin.wordpress.com for show notes, announcements, and upcoming events. You can also follow me at brainagarin on Instagram and Landwalker on Tumblr. My books are available on Amazon and in the Willow Wings Witch Shop. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hex. Hex positive.